Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. All right, today we're going to talk about new leaders. So in my experience and in my guest experience, far too often new leaders are not really prepared for the role that they're going in. From my world, they're often expert leaders and they do that quite well. They gain their credibility through their content knowledge. But the moment we push them into that space where they are leading and they are no longer the only expert, they struggle. And that leads to frustration and disillusionment from the leader as well as from the team that's being led and people being ineffective. In my experience, that's where the organization starts to turn and say, oh, promoted past their competence. And I actually say, nope, no, they just were never trained to lead in the way you're asking to lead. Now, the, for, the good news is this is a fixable solution. So today we're going to talk about what it is you need to know to lead effectively. And we're going to talk about it as if you were a new leader, but heads up, it applies regardless where you are in the leadership journey. So my guest today is Bill Treasurer. Bill is a voluminous writer, I have to say. He's founded Giant Leap Consulting in 2002, and he's worked with thousands of leaders in the U.S. and beyond, including companies like NASA, eBay, Lenovo, UBS Bank, Saks Fifth Avenue, and much more. In this most recent book that we're talking about, Leadership Two Words at a Time, Simple Truths for Leading Complicated People. Um, You can learn more about his work, too, at giantleapconsulting.com. So, Bill, welcome to the show. Wanda, it is so great to be back with you. I'm so looking forward to our time together and talking about this really important topic, working with new leaders and helping them get on the right path to be successful. It is indeed a big problem. I know so many companies run new leader training programs, but they scratch the surface of what people need, both in content and in the number of people who need it as well. So, I always like to start, what's the problem? What got you to write this book? What's the problem you're seeing that you think needs to be solved, particularly with new leaders? Yeah, so so thank you. The I work with leaders all the time, as you do. I, I was literally yesterday in Chicago working with a group, and I was working with another group the day before that, and all of them are newer, newer leaders. They're in these uh, high-potential new leadership programs, and I've been doing that for a long time. And over time, I've noticed that this transition from individual contributor to a leader is tenuous. And, you know, when we put a leader into a new role, moving from individual contributor, nobody hands them a leadership playbook. We're all sort of having to grope things through. Now, we might get some mentoring, some coaching from somebody out in front of us, and I hope that that happens. But the vast majority of organizations don't have leadership development programs. They don't hand them a playbook. So there's a lot of groping. There's a lot of stepping backwards before you step forward. Uh, The most common thing that I think happens and that I see happens is that the person who's an individual contributor, because I think back for yourself, me too, and, and any one of your listeners today, that when you're an individual contributor, you're knocking off your own items on a to do list. Your own ambition is moving you forward. You're being very productive and hopefully disciplined about the use of time and such. 
and you're doing a good job. So you get somebody looks at you and says, that person is doing really well. They're excelling as an individual. Let's give them a team of people. And leading people, not yourself, is a very different skill set than being productive yourself as an individual contributor. And we don't give them the skills to be able to do that. Now, some organizations might be able to have a new leadership program, but most don't. So this tenuous transition from individual contributor, and what happens is that individual, what made them successful, being productive, knocking out items on the to-do list, and they start trying to do that from, for everybody else. They start <laughs> trying to know everybody else's job, often doing the other people's job, and they get subsumed. They get weighed down, not just by the responsibility, but by the work overload. And, it beca- and then we start losing the enjoyment of leading. So those are some of the things that get in the way. Boy, uh, don't we all see, don't both of us see that? And I'm sure lots of other people do it every single day. Um, and you didn't give up most of these times. You're not giving up the rest of your job. You're adding on this leadership thing. And, and then I hear comments like they don't pay me to lead and there's not enough time in the day. And by the way, I didn't have any good examples coming up through the organization. So maybe I've got a mentor somewhere, but what experience do they have? Right. My last one, Bill, is I swear that new leaders deal with the greatest performance problems in the organization. Because they deal with people who have not yet figured out how to do what they're supposed to do, who are not sure they want to be in this industry or this company, I and mean, a host of other factors, and they have the least experience. A host of other factors. And, and a lot of times, too, that individual contributor has a great deal of operational and technical knowledge, mm-hmm. right? And, and they rely on that. But what they don't tell them when you move into a leadership role is, oh, I'm going to have to play part-time psychiatrist most of the time now? <laughs> Nobody told me that. And this whole emotional intelligence stuff and empathy and listening and building trust. Wait a minute. I want to go back to the operational stuff that I know how to do. I know how to do that when I can control it. And you're right. They end up trying to do everybody's job, which nobody appreciates in the first place. You can't do it all. And then you're overloaded and overworked. All right. Now you, you can't say, do it all. You got like it. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you for that one. All right. All right. You say your headline says leadership in two words. So why two words? What's the point of that? And what two words, by the mm-hmm. way? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, good question. So what I have found in my executive coaching, and I've been coaching for a long time, uh, my business now is 20 years old. And before I started the business, I worked for a very large management consulting company called Accenture. And I was their first full-time internal executive coach. And over the course now of some 25 years of coaching, what I have found is when a person is really twined up about some situation a frustration, maybe it's uh, an interpersonal relationship that's not going well, if I can help that person narrow down in the fewest words possible what they think they need to do to resolve the situation, What I have found is the fewer the words that they use, the more likely they are to actually do something about it. I'll give you a very specific example that actually set me on my path to discovery around this two words concept. So I had a guy named Steve. He was associate partner and he wanted to become a partner in Accenture, which at the time was a partnership firm. 
And so he was really hungry to be up there with them. He'd be around the partners all day. He'd stay up literally sometimes till three o'clock in the morning working on a deliverable to pass off to the partners. And yet when I would work with the partners, their feedback was, he's too intense. He wants it too much. He's giving off this vibe of desperation. And, and he's going to need to have to resolve that. So when he and I got together for coaching on a number of occasions, I'm like, Steve, just laser in. What do you think that you will need? A gap that you might need to close for you to get to where you need to be as a partner. And he was kind of quiet for a minute. And he says, you know what? I guess I need to be calm and confident. And, and it was like exactly what he needed. He needed to have calm confidence and so we started to explore that idea and unpack that together and work out a plan that he would start developing composure and confidence. And then he'd get ready to go to a meeting with the partners. And he's like, hey, I'm going to a meeting with a partner, CC. He'd like text me CC, which was our clue for calm confidence. And his uptake went up and he worked on that and he made a lot of progress. Over time, I started cataloging concepts like calm confidence. I'll give you another very quick example that I'm sure you've heard. You probably have given it as advice. I heard it in the last two days. We had a, a client panel come in, and one of the clients said this to our group of new leaders. The two words that we often learn early on in our career, no surprises. Your bosses want no surprises. Raise your hand if you need help. Let me know about the flaming meteorite before it comes into my space. Don't delay before you let me know. Bring me in early so that I can help you. No surprises. Well, that's a two-word concept. So the book introduces a whole bunch of two-word concepts, and it's structured around three major sections. Leading yourself, two-word concept. Leading people, which is entirely different than leading yourself, two-word concept. And leading work, which is different than the two of those other things. And another two-word concept. All right. Um, as an academic, way back, many more years ago than I'm going to confess to, I look at all of the models that various consultants would introduce and think, way too simple, way too simple to capture all the complexity. Now, as an academic, part of your job is to capture as much complexity as you can get. Fast forward as a consultant and I and trainer and coach and all those things, I now zero in on very simple models because people can't remember this complicated thing. Two by two works for a really good reason. Same idea. Two variables, two words. I love it. And I think you're right. If you can remember it, then you can kind of work with it. Yeah. And to your point, by the way, I think a lot of people in the organizational development field and a lot of authors including me, uh, have been part of what I call the Legion of Leadership Complexifiers, the <laughs> LLC, that, that we like to take this idea and dimensionalize it and nuance it to death. And suddenly, after a while, we have diluted what it actually means to lead. And we've uh, burdened people by thinking, I've got so many barometers that I'm supposed to live up to, to to be a leader. So we complexify things. And to your point, I think that when we learn to sort of help simplify it, in ways that people understand it, grasp it, get it, they're likely to do something about it. Right. And, and it's, well, it's memorable. I think the important part is if you can't remember it, then what is good does that do for you? All right. So I'm bought in under the two words. All right. I want to start with some of the concepts here. And you have three, the book is organized around three principles that you described. But I just love the fact that you said there are three oaths that you make. 
tell me about those oaths, and then I'm going to unpack how. Sure. So I knew when I was writing the book that, you know, there's an old saying, nothing changes. If nothing changes, yeah, I don't want to just give people cotton candy for the mind, right? I, I want to help them provide useful tips so that they'll do something with it and become a better leader and be more effective. And, and I, being familiar with Robert Caldini's work on influence and such, that when we, when we make a promise and we verbalize it or we sign our name to a contract, the likelihood of us doing something improves dramatically than, say, our New Year's resolution, where we might not say it or we're like, tell ourselves that we won't swear until somebody cuts us off in traffic. Uh, so by, by including an oath, I included an oath for leading yourself. Here's your oath to yourself. At the end of that section of the book, here's an oath, and it says some things that they can make a promise to themselves, and if they can agree to it, simply sign their name and put a date next to it. Same thing when they do the leading others. There's an oath you will take to being a good steward and a good leader of others, focusing on them and developing them to get the most and best out of them. If you can agree with that, sign your name. I want them, and then the third section, of course, on leading work and to getting results and to recognizing that leadership is an adventure and you're going to be on point for giving results and how you get those results matters. And if you can agree with what the O says, sign that. My whole thing is get involved with your book, write down your commitment, let's take some action because this is going to help you. And by making a promise to yourself, you're not, this promise isn't to anybody else. It's a promise to yourself, but you're putting it in writing. Uh, my, my great hope is that it will be, make the book more useful because people will actually do something with it. Right, right. Important point. Headlines of those three, just as a steal the show, is one is the on yourself is faithful to yourself is what the oath is about. The second one in leading others is about do right by others. And the third one is about do great work, which those sound like to me pretty powerful concepts. And if every leader did that, I think we'd be in pretty good shape. Be all right. and, and the leader would be fit to lead. It's really, to me, the three dimensions of leadership fitness, of being you know, personally disciplined, uh, taking good care in your treatment of others, uh, and doing a quality job and getting the results and getting the job done while you're facing challenges. You do that as a leader, you're going you're gonna to face setbacks, you're going to get burned here and there, but you will largely be successful if you can do those three things of leadership fitness. Okay. All right. I want to dig on the first one of these. We're going to do some of each of them, but this notion of leading yourself and the oath is about being faithful to yourself. And so I find that we've got a lot of talk going on lately about values in the last couple of three years. I think that's healthy. We kind of left it alone for a a decade or more. And now we're back to talking about values and understanding your values, knowing your values and hear an awful lot of young leaders say, I don't want to work for that pe- person because it's inconsistent with my values. Except that, and so fine, I agree with that, true, but we often don't know what we mean by consistent or inconsistent with my values because we've not stopped to think about it. So how do you help leaders, one, identify what their real values are and then make sure they live by those the mm. way they want others to live by them? One of your actions Right. So, you know, what I look for in values is congruency, Uh, meaning you may have values that you can state out of your mouth, but it's in the actions of living those values that we find. Are you congruent with your values or is there a gap? Mm 
between the things that you say are important, but the actions that you're putting in place. And in coaching, we can hold up the mirror a little bit and help a person recognize when they might be out of alignment, out of congruency with themselves. An old activity that I'll often do is what we call the five flags. And I'll, and, and it comes from this, by the way, it comes from Dante's Inferno, the great epic poem uh, by Dante Alighieri. And, and that story is about a midlife crisis. It's literally the first words of that that epic poem are I was in the middle of my I was on in the middle of my way. I was in the middle place. Right. And I had I was in a dark, lonesome wood and I realized that I was off the path. So this how Dante has to get back to the path is with Virgil. He's got to go through hell. But before he goes through hell and there's nine stages of hell, there's a group of people outside the first gate of hell. And they are shades of people. They're translucent. And they are not really fully formed people, but they're marching. And they are, they, these are the people that were called the shades. And who are these people? These are the people that heaven didn't want and hell wouldn't have. They're the people who never took a stand in life. Oh. And what their punishment in this uh, hellish place is they're marching behind a, ba- a banner, this flag that's flapping in the wind and they're marching behind it and guess what it says on the flag nothing <laughs> they stood for nothing in life they're going to stand for nothing in eternity hell doesn't want them heaven won't have them and so i use that as a metaphor in the coaching and then i we put the five flags out they, they draw five flags and i'll ask them what are the five central values to your own life that you think is, are the things worth taking a stand for or the things that you will stand against? Now, sometimes there'll be high-level things like, you know, family. I stay up for family. Great. When you stand for that, when you embody that value, what shows up? And then they bullet point out the behaviors that will show up. So by doing the five flags activity, you know, in my own life, creativity and independence are very important. And yet, when I was working at Accenture, over time, I was finding a gap that I wasn't able to apply those things in the way that I wanted to. Ultimately, I made the decision to be, you know, open up my own business as an entrepreneur. And now I could do that on a daily basis, be independent and creative. So by the five flags activities are a great way to identify what you hold deeply. Uh, and are you living that value as it's showing up? Right. So I know many values exercises. I like this. I love the metaphor of the story to go behind it, the Inferno um, poem. But what I like about it is these are the five flags I'm going to set, five values I'm going to stand for. But what does that look like what I'm doing? Like, what am I doing? And ostensibly, what am I not doing if I really mean that collaboration is my number one flag, for example, or creativity or family or whatever it is? And then you've got a yardstick to say, am I living by it? Mm. Okay. And this is true organizationally, too. You know, when organizations set a core value. Maybe they got a single word and maybe they put a paragraph, but do they go the extra mile and say, okay, when this is being lived and embodied, what shows up behaviorally? Because that's what matters about value. Right, right. I was talking earlier today with a colleague and we were talking about uh, reviewing our own perspectives of the teams that we've seen that we thought were the fabulous, amazing teams in the world, the dream team, if you will, reviewing some of the literature on that and speculating about what we thought was missing. 
And one of the um, the things that we were talking about is some of the amazing leaders of dream teams had an incredible strong set of values that they forced around the norms and behaviors of the team. And you see that in great sports teams, you see that in great business teams, you see it all over. So you get the notion of this central core of values that says, in effect, what we will do and what we won't do, what I will tolerate and what I won't tolerate. Okay, I like that one. Now, one of your other chapters is about cultivate composure. Cultivate composure. What is this? Why is it important? And more importantly, how do we do it? (laughs) Well, a lot of leaders... uh, a lot of people are puppets to the past. And a lot of times our first leadership imprint comes from our parents. And oftentimes it'll be a dominating parent. And sometimes it'll be a parent who has a temper. I speak for myself. Uh, My dad was a short fused hothead. And so when I eventually moved into a leadership role, I thought that was the way I was supposed to lead. I would, I would use, I would inspire through fear. If people weren't doing what I wanted, I would come down hard until until uh, one of my employees called me on it. Uh, this is, you know, 30 years ago. He said, hey, man, if you ever treat me like that again, I'll walk. I don't need any job that bad to be treated as poorly as I was by you. And I got defensive and such. But his feedback helped me pick up my first book I ever read on leadership, The One Minute Manager. And it set me on my way. I got better. But one of the things that I've learned over time in working with so many leaders, new leaders, is they don't really know who they are as a leader. They have been imprinted by somebody before them, a puppet to the past. And the control of your own emotions, being what I would call emotionally sober instead of emotionally inebriated, uh, requires the cultivation of composure because you're leading people and you can, it's one thing to damage yourself, like if if I get a road rage incident, I might, you know, it could pan out badly for me and maybe the other person. But when you're leading people and you have the transmission of furious anger and negative energy, it now is damaging at scale. So cultivating composure is, is very important for the emotional control, if you will, for one. The other thing that I think is so important about cultivating composure is it purifies your motives that when you're leading other people and people are idiosyncratic and they will frustrate you and you'll be upset with them. But when you, when you cultivate composure through meditation, maybe spiritual practice, your motive for working with others becomes, your conscience becomes clearer as to why are you do something. Are you doing something because you feel offended that your authority has been disrespected and, and it's something petty to you? Or, or is your motive, you know, I, I think I'm upset about this because I know that that person can do better and I'm wanting to hold them to account for their own self and for own, their own good. So part of cultivating compo- composure is um, purifying your motives. And part of it is making sure that you are emotionally sober on a daily basis so that you don't do damage to people. Right. Emotionally sober as opposed to emotionally inebriated. Okay, I've got a new word. I'm going to steal that one from you, Bill, from this point forward. All right. We get a sense of why, because whatever a mood you're feeling, positively or negatively, it's infectious. And especially if you're the leader, it amplifies down, not just spreads. It amplifies. So whatever it is, it's double, at least, by the time it goes down. 
and then gets interpreted with a host of meanings you may not have meant it to get an added to as well. So how, how do you help people cultivate composure and stay emotionally sober? Yeah. So this piece of advice I, I first got from Ken Blanchard uh, okay. and, and that is how do you start your day? Do you start your day by guzzling down some coffee, eating a breakfast burrito, turning on the shock jock on the radio while you're driving to work, listening to angertainment and some political discourse that just wedges you further from some other tribe? Or do you start your day by easing into your day? Uh, in my case, you know, I come to my office and I, I have quiet first, listening first. It's like I'm tuning up my body first. What am I hearing outside? What temperature do I feel? What's going on inside of me in terms of my feelings and checking in with those? Before I ever open my mouth, these things are happening. And it doesn't take long, right? And then I'll take five minutes of reading spiritual practice or something actually often from the Stoics from 2000 years ago, a simple paragraph of reading and a contemplation. And then I love Benjamin Franklin's two questions. He said, what good in the world shall I do today? That's how he started his day. And at the end of the day, his final reflection is what good in the world have I done today? So easing your way into your day and being thoughtful about and intentional about how you're going to put your leadership to good use for others today. Wow, I love that. What good in the world shall I do today? <laughs> That's an interesting question. If you think about how do I prioritize what's the most important thing for me to do? What good in the world shall I do today? I love it. So um, it's in one of the ways of cultivating composure is to not come into the office or come into your workspace, wherever that is, ramped up, ready to, you know, but rather to come in and tune in. Where am I? What sounds am I hearing? What are the light tones? What are my body feeling? Maybe take a moment to reflect on something, a quote or a story or a paragraph. Just that moment of checking in with yourself, which is going to bring the emotional energy down, um, even it out, soberize it, sober it, whatever the upright verb love, is oh, there. Gave me a word. <laughs> <laughs> Soberize. I don't think that's legitimate. <laughs> and then I'm I'm more ready to engage with people as opposed to I come in angry, fired up, and so on. Yeah, and for for people that are you know distracted and people that want to get into the hustle of the day and they got some result on their mind, I get it. I do it too, but it only takes five minutes. Don't feel like it's a burden. You're not going to have to sit on some holy mountain in the meditative transcendental stance if you want to. That's fine. But it literally can just take five small minutes of you get some centering. That's what you want, centering. The world's going to be crazy around you today, right? But you can get this moment of centeredness so you can bring that centeredness into the rest of the craziness instead of getting caught up in the craziness and be and transmitting it to everybody else. Okay. All right. Today, I'm gonna, this isn't in your book, but I'm going to ask the question at any rate. Um, we've been talking about this about ramped up, you know, and fired up and, you know, anger, the more anger side of the emotions. But sometimes the emotions are burned out, stressed out, depressed even. And we're seeing an awful lot of that coming from people at the moment. I think people are struggling. Do you have advice on how to cultivate composure when you're on that side of the emotion? Mm. Self-care helps. Um, and... Uh, and I, again, I go back to simplicity, right? Sometimes you just need your own, you need to put a moat around yourself a little bit. I find a walk can be a very healthy thing to do. 
you know, if you want to bring your animal, fine, but you're probably better off not bringing your animal. I've never ended a walk in anything but gratitude if it's a long enough walk. I may start with a furrowed brow, but a long walk and some of the greatest, you know, contemplators of all time have taken long walks, whether it's Steve Jobs or Albert Einstein uh, and plenty of others along the way. But walking is a low, uh, you know, a, a low energy, high return, low impact, high return kind of activity that anybody can do. And it causes a lot of dissipation. And my great recommendation would be don't put anything in your in your ears. Don't I, I hate to say this one and we're talking on a podcast, but when you go for a long walk, it should be to uh, let your mind walk. It's like, you know how you take your dog for a walk. Take your your brain for a walk. Let your brain out. And and I think that uh, that's one of the and getting some fresh air like that is a really healthy thing to do when you're stressed. All right. I love that. Let your brain walk. I know I was um, coaching somebody not too long ago who was doing the walks and the running up and down the steps and so on and still pretty stressed. And I said, but what are you thinking when you're walking and running up and down the steps? And the person went, oh, I got it. It's a little bit emptying that space and not having anything, I think, is the calming spot. Okay. Um, We're at a perfect spot to take a break then, Bill. So my guest today is Bill Treasurer. He is founder of Giant Leap Consulting. The book we're talking about is Leadership Two Words at a Time, Simple Truths for Leading Complicated People. Two words because we remember two words. Two words, you can understand what they are, live with them, and move forward. And the one we've just been talking about is cultivating composure. We'll be back to talk about many more two words. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. 
You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Bill Treasurer, the book we're talking about, Leadership Two Words at a Time. I love this concept that two words we remember, like cultivate composure, or some of the others that we're going to practice shortly, gain control, practice humility, trust first, lead up. Those two words help you understand or remember what it is you need to be focusing on and doing. The other concept for today is that new leaders have the least amount of advice on how to manage what is a very complicated job. And this book, Leadership Two Words at a Time, is kind of Bill's lifeline, lifetime of work and what it means to coach people to lead effectively. Three parts to the book, Leading Yourself, which is really all about understanding yourself. The other one is Leading Others, which is the things that you do to make other people feel strong, feel powerful, feel well-treated. And then the fourth one is about getting results. Um, so when we were just talking about cultivating composure, I believe is in the middle section with how you lead with others. So I think the one that I'm going to now that I want to hear about, Bill, is this practice humility. So what is that and why does it matter? Mm. It, it may be uh, the most important thing to leadership. It's a really important concept. I, a couple of years ago, I was working with a group of new leaders. We had about 300 people in a room. With a company, it's my longest running client. I've been working with them for 17 years. And the CEO of the company joined me on the stage. And he's an older guy. And now he's about 70. And I asked him, you know, what's something that you appreciate a lot more now about your leadership that you didn't fully appreciate at a younger point in time? And, and this is a very dominating, fast-moving, frankly impatient person. And he said, humility. Humility. And... And I said, well, tell us a little bit more about that. He said, you know, there have been times in my career where I knew the answer that I wanted and the outcome that I wanted. And I would tell people the direction that they needed to go to get the outcome. And over time, I've realized that I missed a lot of good input that other people could have given me that could have maybe added to the integrity of my decisions and got us to better outcomes and better results. I heard a similar thing from a friend of mine. I wrote a book called The Leadership Killer, Reclaiming Humility in an Age of Arrogance with Captain John Coach Havlick, a buddy of mine who became a Navy SEAL for 30 years. And we wrote a book together about, and it was right in the uh, kind of the Me Too moment where there was a decimation of so many leaders who put their whole ethical scaffolding, came out from underneath them and, and ruined their whole career by some stupid, unethical choice. And whenever we would talk about this, me and my Navy buddy, Coach Havlick, it, ego was always at play. So there might be other stuff going on, but ego was always at play. And and he introduced me to this military word. It's actually an old world, it's an old Greek word, hubris, hubris. Mm-hmm. And hubris means dangerous overconfidence. There's even an insinuation in the original Greek uh, part of that word of taking pleasure in the pain of others. And And we want leaders to be confident. We do. But we don't want them to be conceited. We want a leader to never lose sight of where they came from. And oftentimes, that's the non-leader ranks. So John Havlick will tell you the story that when he became in command of a ship, that there is a temptation to want to be up there on the bridge with all the other important people who've got the brass on their chest. 
But he learned over time, you've got to walk the deck plates. You have to go to where the work is being done and listen to the people closest to the work because you're going to miss a lot that they're going to catch. So I think humility first starts with listening, listening, not being the one to have all the answers, but being the one who has open ears to other people's input and involvement so they, they keep you from making dunderheaded decisions and they add to the integrity of your thinking. So I've said a lot there, but I'll pause because I'm sure you would like to react to some of it. And it's a good topic. We can plummet with more stuff for sure. I am so glad to see humility, vulnerability back into the lexicon of talking about leadership. I don't think it was there 10 years ago, and I'm really grateful that it's back again. I personally believe, and I've said many times on the show, that authenticity, you know, we look at a re- leader and we say that person is authentic, that that's a judgment. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're authentic, never can know if you're authentic or not. No way. It's a ju- I make a judgment. But that judgment is formed by both your confidence and your humility. And it's the balance of these two that seem to be such an appealing draw for people who are ready to follow a leader. Confident, but humility. As in, I can say, I'm not really good at this thing, but that's fine because somebody else is. The mm. confidence is it isn't a problem, but the humility is I'm not good at it. Um, or I- any other variation on that thing. I just think it's such a, such a critical thing. All right. Now, how do you help people? particularly ones with lots of ego, practice humility. Mm -hmm. So so I'm going to rewind a a little bit because you said some powerful stuff there about that, that we want that blend of confidence and humility. It's, it's what we're willing to follow. And when we see it, we don't, we don't always see it. It's it's, uh, kind of rare. Uh, But when it, when we do see it, it's powerful. And and I also want to suggest that the two leaders you don't want to be are what I call pig heads and weaklings. We don't want the peak pig head who I'm going to unilaterally make the decisions. I know what's best and only I can solve it. And I'm going to tell you what I want and you all do everything I tell you to do. And I'm not going to listen to your ideas. I'm stubborn. I'm pig headed. We don't want leaders that are pig heads. We also don't want weaklings. I'm, you know, mealy mouthed. I flip flop all the time. I say I'm going to do something. Then I meet some resistance and I quickly fold. Like, so those are like the opposite of like lack of confidence and way too much hubris. So we don't want that leader. But what we do want is this blend of confidence and humility. And how do you cultivate humility? The, the first place is to be more, you know, engage in listening, engage in listening. And for some of us, and I'm, I tend to be an extroverted person, you, you know, I have a friend who literally puts his finger on his mouth. And he, and he does executive coaching. He does this because it reminds him to literally, I'm, I'm going to put this over my mouth to keep myself from talking. Um, I, I found it interesting, learned a long time ago, I'm sure you know it, that the word listen, you can rearrange those letters into silent. How about that, right? So there, there's a connection between listening and silence. So listening is super powerful and it has to be real, right? Like you can't be with distracted stuff and the response you're formulating, but genuinely being present and giving that person a voice situating yourself in the content of what they're talking about. So that's one great place to start. You could also invite people to share with you times when um, maybe you lacked a little humility or, or times when uh, you overstepped the confidence threshold and into overconfidence. A 360 degree feedback is 
terrific tool for finding out whether you do that or not. Um, but sometimes just the good counsel of somebody you deputize to tell you the truth, uh, to, to be able to share that kind of thing, you know, with you can help on humility. And then I also think, you know, like we talked about with cultivating composure, when you read the wisdom of the, the great spiritual ancestors before us, there will often be warnings about um, the lack of humility and, and almost all of the great spiritual wisdom will have good nuggets of what can we do to make sure that we are recognizing that the other human beings around us are very, very important. The first law of leadership or the first rule of leadership, in my estimation, is it's not about you. It's about them. And sometimes it takes what I call the holy shift. Sometimes the holy shift is a focus away from my own ambitions and what I want and a focus on what can I help them get that will help them be more successful. So shifting the focus away from yourself and on to others is also important for humility. Well, this explains why your oath in this section of the book is about doing right by others. That, First uh, order obligation. Right. Doing right by others and that that is what we're driving towards. Okay. Um, it does go missing. I will just add that sometimes you can learn a lot by paying attention to the leaders that you admire and what they do. And I think you will find that there are moments when they're showing vulnerability or humility and an awful lot of listening. It's part of why we admire them because they listen to us. Mm, absolutely. I was at a, I was in Arizona two weeks ago and, and it was a strategic planning session. And the new CEO of the company is wanting the, the idea of psychological safety to take more hold. And one of the things that we smartly did on the agenda is we brought in somebody who is very beloved in the company and we worked with this person beforehand and, and she came in and shared about a huge mistake that she had made in the company. And she, and it wasn't to point fingers at her and, and, you know, uh, like sort of poke at something that she did and, and smush her face in it or anything like that. It was a learning, right? It was like, here's with transparency, here's what happened. Here's how it shifted me. Here's what I got out of it. And it was, it was her putting all the cards fully transparent, not hiding something, not pretending. And it was so powerful. And I kid you not, Wanda, there's 25 people in a strategy session. When she was done in that 15-minute segment, they all got up and clapped. Mm-hmm. And, and it was the reinforcement, too, from the CEO afterwards that we need more of this. This is what courage looks like. This is right. getting out of your comfort zone, but it's what creates psychological safety for everybody else is when we have people that are courageous enough to do this and we all start doing it and be much more transparent around here. Right. And it takes humility to do that. I do almost always when I'm doing a leadership training program, I will bring in senior leader executives to talk about their careers and their career progressions. And I get them to talk about some of their big successes, you know, their big transitions and you know, how much courage it took to do that and so on. And I always, always get them to talk about a failure, a setback. I give them the out that it isn't always your doing, but there's always a setback and there's multiple setbacks. And the ones who do this and tell the real story about it, they don't scuff around it and kind of fake it. And, you know, they tell the real story, walk away with the audience loving them. Just mm-hmm. saying, wow, how authentic. Wasn't that amazing? I never knew that side of them. I mean, it's, it's incredible what it does. When we do that in balance with 
confidence because if I just do the humility and go, oh, I got this wrong. Oh, this is terrible. Oh, I'm awful. I never take that job again. Like, no, we're not following that. So you're right. And, and that woman said it was actually the best thing that ever happened to her career in terms of sort of re-energizing, refocusing her and such. And this idea of being able to step out, own your mistakes and make mistakes, right? Um, I wrote a whole book about it. It's, it's got a swear word, so it's, it's a small swear word. You can edit it out if you need to. Yeah. It's the book, uh, A Leadership Kick in the Ass, that we're all going to get a, a kick at some point. And in the beginning, in the forward of the book, Clint Hurdle, who was the then coach of the Pittsburgh Pirates, he said that I have found that there's two types of leaders, those who have been humbled and those who are about to be. (laughs) We're all going to get it at some point, right? And it's what you do in that moment afterwards that makes all the difference. And that humility, sometimes through the porthole of humiliation, is often how we learn to become humble. Right. But it keeps you grounded. It's an important part of your leadership seasoning. Okay. All right. Let's talk. I want to, I'm going to skip around a little bit because there are a couple I want to make sure we cover. One is called Lead Up. And this is towards the end of the book. So it's about getting work done. I must get this question a hundred times a week, as I'm sure you do. How am I supposed to manage up? So tell us about Lead Up and what mm-hmm. advice you have for doing that. You know, it's, you, you absolutely have to work with your team to help them be successful. And the interesting thing about working with your team, you know this, this idea of servant leadership is that you work for your team. They don't work for you. You have to remove barriers to their performance and help them be successful. Oh, yeah, by the way, you also have to help your boss be successful because that's going to be part of your career path uh, as well. And the sponsorship of your own career will come from the people that you have helped become successful yeah. And your boss has to be one of those people. Uh, so leading up, to, first of all, don't minimize it, right? Like you, you make sure that you're multidirectional. Yes, you're paying attention to your team uh, and the people who directly report to you downward on the hierarchy, but you're gonna be also paying attention to the people above you. First of all, get very close to your boss's goals. Why, why, what are these goals that we have in our own division? Hey boss, what about you? What are some of your own goals? And then when you have to bring something to your boss to get their sponsorship or endorsement or training or investment, always connect it to the goals that they're trying to further that you are going to help them get done by doing this task for them. So first of all, think about your and get very close with what are your boss's uh, goals. That becomes very important. Um, The other thing in terms of leading up is to... Think beyond your boss's thinking. Your boss will give you a directive. They'll say, I really need you to do X. Okay, boss. And then I go off and I do X. But what your boss really wants you to do is come back with X plus one. Having done the thing and then thought a little bit further about what the next step could be, or maybe even doing the extra work to say, I also added on this, the sprinkles on the Sunday that you wanted me to build. But think beyond your thinking because a lot of times your boss's your boss doesn't uh, could use the extra clarity. I'll give you an example from my own life. Back when I, in my Accenture days, I remember I was doing a project for one of the partners and he said, Bill, I want you to work on this thing. But he didn't give me a whole lot of direction. And and I came back to him and I'm, I'm, I'm like, it sounds like you wanted this. Is this what you wanted? He goes, it's close, but the, I, it, it's, uh, I also want a little bit of this. And, and I did it a second time. And I said, I, 
you know, I feel like I, I'm not really like helping you get what you want. And, and he said, Bill, Bill, you have to understand something. I don't really fully know what I want. And through this iterative process, it helps me. So what I, what I want you to do is hear what I say, but come back with more so that together we can shape it. So I learned that idea of thinking beyond your thinking. And to the extent that you can do that for your boss, do X, but do X plus one, coming with some additional, having dug it down with a little bit more research, uh, giving an extra level of quality to the deliverable that you're bringing them. Um, but, but that becomes important too. So know, your, know their goals and why they're important to them. And then think beyond their thinking when they give you some directive or a task uh, to carry for them. All right, Bill, that strikes me as a way of actually getting um, out from underneath some of the burden of the workload. And let me explain what I mean. This may sound a little wacky because you just said do X plus one, and I'm going to say that means you can work less. All right, if if my boss isn't clear what he or she wants, then I don't want to go and do X and do X to the nth degree because then I've done stuff that isn't really even clear that's what they want. So I need to understand, is my boss have a really clear vision and I haven't understood it, or are they not made up their mind yet either? Okay, great. I come back with, hey, boss, I think this is the framing for X before I go deeper. Have I got that right? And there's the plus one. And by the way, when I'm thinking about this, I was thinking about Y and Z. Do those belong? But I haven't now gone and rushed off and completed a task without coming back to help shape what it is the boss wants. And that's the distinction with knowing, is it a deliverable they're looking for or is it shaping a thinking they're looking for? Yeah, I, lo- I love all of that, um, that, that you added to, to the uh, think beyond your thinking piece. I was, uh, yeah, I told you yesterday, I was working with a bunch of leaders. We had a client panel come in and we asked one of the, the all the panelists to respond to this idea about, you know, what are you looking for us as customers? We were asking them, what are you looking so that we are doing a good job for you, Mr. and Mrs. Customer? And and one of the people said something that was really insightful and kind of, you kind of got to it right there is, don't make my life harder. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't bring me things that I'm not the one who should be, you know, attending to this. Or don't bring it to me so late I can't be helpful. Or... Uh, don't come to it and just sort of throw it in my lap and look for me to give you the answer. Uh, you know, don't make my life. Uh, and by the way, don't be over communicating with me either. You know, there, it's not that no news is good news, but if I have to be interacting with you on a daily basis because of some new drama that you're pulling me into, then you're making my life and uh, more burdensome as a leader. So part of your job as a le- as a person who wants your boss to be successful and leading up is anticipating, is there something that I could take off of their plate? Is there some, uh, some way that I can make the attainment of their goals more efficient? Uh, so that, that's also part of leading beyond, you know, thinking beyond your boss's yeah, thinking. Boss think, right. Leading yeah. up is lightening their load. Yeah. All right. So there's real messages in this one to get close to your boss's goals so that you know them. So you're tying what you're doing to the boss's goals. There's thinking beyond your boss's thinking, so X plus one, and that doesn't mean dig deeply. It may just mean thinking. And then like this third one I love, don't make your boss's life harder by bringing problems or situations or making a bigger mess that they have to get involved in or over-communicating or what it is. Don't make the boss's life easier. Okay, Bill, we've got about three minutes maybe. Um, trust first. 
Yeah. You know, a lot of times when you're in a leadership role, we get we get really fixated on, uh, you know, do I trust that person? And, and I'll trust that person when they prove to me that they can be trusted. So I'm, I'm, I've got scrutiny and my walls are up and such. And, and really, one of the ways that you build trust is first being trustworthy. Is give, taking the courage to give trust before expecting others to have to prove themselves to you instead of you proving themselves uh, yourself to them. So trust is so important, as you know, the currency between leaders and followers, between human beings. And it also takes courage to be the one to trust first and to get disarmed and to assume the risk of potential betrayal, because that goes with trust as well. That I, I've got to take a risk on this person. They may let me down. Um, so am I willing to take that risk or am I going to get jaded and put walls around me so that I'm impenetrable and I don't build relationships that way? Relationships are key to business success, to life success, and you will not have them if you are a high skeptical, low trust kind of person. So you've got to find a way to have the courage to get to trust because it is essential. That's right. So many leaders say you have to trust your team. And I watch classes as you do go, yeah, 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 yeah. But I don't trust my team because they're not as good as I am or as competent as I am or as thorough as I am or as whatever as I am. Mm. That is the message that I hear from senior leaders. What I'm hearing from senior leaders is say what you're saying. Trust first. Grant trust. Not infinitely, but grant trust. And then, um, you know, see what comes back. But if you don't give it, you're not going to get it back. Mm. I think it's the message that you're saying. Okay, Bill, there are hundreds of other examples in this book that we could talk about, many that I have missed here, including how do you gain control? That's a really interesting one to me, um, and a bunch of others that we could talk about. One minute, Bill, what takes you out of your comfort zone? Oh, uh, well, right now it's taking me out of my comfort zone. I, I always have to keep learning, right? I, I turned 60, which was shocking to me this summer. And it was the only time I ever had sort of an ex existential moment of like, wow, that's a big number. Um, and I need to stay vibrant and I need to keep learning. And right now I'm getting involved with Oculus headsets to deliver training through virtual reality. And I've been learning it for the last year and a half. And there's, it's a steep learning curve. So that's taking me out of my comfort zone in a healthy way for my business, it, and it's going to be good for my clients, but it's definitely, you know, uh, putting me out, out into the <laughs> discomfort land. I love it. I love that you're taking yourself out of the comfort zone intentionally. All right. Great conversation today. My guest, Bill Treasurer. Bill's um, company is Giant Leap Consulting, and you can learn more from him at giantleapconsulting.com. The book is Leadership, Two Words at a Time, Simple Truths for Leading Complicated People. And as you've heard today, there are many other books behind that. Just to Google, and I think you'll find lots of them. Bill, what I think is so powerful about this book is certainly first-time leaders need some guidance on what to do, what not to do. And I love your concept of two words, cultivate composure, practice humility, trust first, lead up, gain control, calm, confident, um, all of those two words help clarify what specifically it is that you need to be doing as a leader and help get your focus on it. And once you get the focus on what that is, then you can develop the behaviors that map behind it. So you got a checklist, then I know what it's looking like. Tons of exercises, tons of ways to think about how to develop those. So if you're an early leader, or for that matter, a later leader, and you're looking for a book on how to do it, 
this is the book for you. So, Bill, thanks for joining us. Two words for you, Wanda. Thank you. You're doing great contribution to leaders in this world, and I really enjoy getting to be with you again. Thank you, Bill. Much appreciated. And if you'd like this episode, please like us on your favorite podcast server and join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.